Hi, I'm David Drubin, a professor and co-chair at the University of California, Berkeley. In this third of four segments, I would like to tell you how we're using some of the methods and principles that we've used from our studies of endocytosis in budding yeast and applying them to mammalian cells to study how actin dynamics are harnessed for endocytic trafficking. So for quite a while now, the morphology of the clathrin-mediated endocytosis pathway has been very well worked out. So these electron micrographs, beautiful electron micrographs from the 1970s, show how yolk proteins are endocytosed by clathrin-mediated endocytosis, and how low-density lipoprotein is taken up by clathrin-mediated endocytosis, as well as viruses. In addition, platinum replica electron microscopy shows these sort of beautiful images where you can see the topology and surface of these um, clathrin coats, and how the clathrin coats often seem to be connected to the actin cytoskeleton. For a long time, whether the actin cytoskeleton was participating in endocytosis was not clear. In yeast, it's very clear that actin is essential for clathrin-mediated endocytosis. Okay. Now, um, back as early as the early 2000s, a number of proteins had been found that link the actin cytoskeleton shown here to endocytic sites. And those proteins are all shown uh, here and, and their linkages. We were particularly interested in this connection between the actin cytoskeleton and the endocytic pathway. And we decided, when we started working, we had previously worked on yeast, we, when we started working on mammalian cells, we decided to focus on this protein HIP1R. It stands for Huntington Interacting Protein. And the reason for that is because it is the mammalian homologue of a yeast protein called SLA2 that we had shown was very important for integrating the activities of the actin cytoskeleton and the endocytic pathway. And so we decided to just take a jump in. No one had looked at its location or function in mammalian cells and see if the protein was doing something similar. And so a graduate student, Osa Inkvist Goldstein, made a GFP tagged version of HIP1R. And when she did this, it showed absolutely beautiful, perfect co-localization between the HIP1R in green and clathrin in red. Um, so it seemed that the, this protein, at least, had a conserved set of interactions. In yeast, it was known to bind to actin, to bind to clathrin, to bind to PIP2. And in mammalian cells, we clearly showed that it's a component of clathrin-mediated endocytic sites. We also collaborated with the lab of John Heuser um, and produced these beautiful electron micrographs, which shown by immunogold gold staining. Here, the gold is revealed by these white dots, that HIP1R is located in association with these uh, clathrin coats. And it often appears at junctions between the coats and, and actin cables, as though it's um, perhaps mediating interactions of the actin cytoskeleton with the clathrin coat. Okay. Now, in order to test the function of HIP1R in these mammalian cells, OSA knocked down the expression of HIP1R using siRNA and saw a really interesting phenotype. What she saw was that green endocytic sites, that's clathrin and green, were associated with actin tails marked by an RFP labeled um, uh, ARP23 complex subunit. 
So knocking down HIP1R caused the actin cytoskeleton to become stably associated with endocytic sites. What was really interesting is that subsequently Edie Sun in my lab showed that exactly the same phenotype occurs when you knock down SLA2 in budding yeast. So this reinforced the idea that this process of clathrin-mediated endocytosis is in a very fundamental way, fundamental way, conserved from yeast to humans. And that was really nice because that suggests that as we started to work on mammalian endocytosis, that the, what we learned from one uh, study in, in mammals would apply to yeast, and what we learned in yeast would apply to mammals. Okay, so what are the questions we hoped to ask in mammalian cells? We wanted to know what are the roles for actin during clathrin-mediated endocytosis. We wanted to know how the dynamics and morphology of endocytic sites are regulated. We wanted to know how regular endocytic events are in mammalian cells. One of the differences between yeast and mammalian cells is that in yeast, we initially reported that the events were very regular, whereas in mammalian cells, events were reported to be somewhat irregular. And a lot of events, um, it was reported, were actually abortive. They started to form an endocytic site that then um, never went on to, to form a, a vesicle. So we wanted to see if, uh, you know, how similar these processes were. And then, ideally, we'd like to be able to use fluorescence microscopy or other techniques to be able to count the number of molecules that are at these endocytic sites, because that will be critical to understanding the functions that they're performing. And so, a really um, influential study in the mammalian endocytosis pathway is shown in this summary cartoon from a paper by, by uh, Christian Merrifield and his colleagues. And what he did is he labeled... Uh, he did two-color imaging in mammalian cells, and he labeled clathrin with red fluorescent protein. And then he also labeled uh, dynamin, the GTPase that pinches off endocytic vesicles, or labeled actin, and looked at their recruitment to endocytic sites. Now, in mammalian cells at the time, there was really a, a lack of clarity about whether actin was functioning in the endocytic pathway. And it was really clear from Christian Merrifield's work why that had... why that was so, why actin had never been seen in light microscopy studies to be associating with endocytic sites. And that was because for most of the lifetime of the endocytic site, there was no actin. There was only a burst of actin assembly that occurred at the end of the pathway when the vesicle formed, okay? And in Christian's work, this burst of actin assembly was seen to occur after the dynamin, GTPase, was recruited to the... to the endocytic site. So that was an important insight. And now, even more so, the yeast and mammalian pathways are looking very similar. Okay. So, yeast and mammalian endocytosis. How similar are they? Um, there's extensive protein and ultrastructural conservation in the... in the, um, process. However, the yeast pathway appeared to be more regular than the mammalian pathway, and appeared to be very efficient. Over 90% of the sites that were initiated ended up forming a vesicle, which was different from what had been reported in mammalian cells. And also, the yeast pathway was absolutely dependent on actin assembly, but not the mammalian pathway. So, we wondered, are these differences that have been reported... are they really, uh, true differences in the systems, or could some of the variability be due to how the processes were, were studied? In yeast, we always were able... we and others in the field are able to make precise integrations of GFP and RFP into the genome so that we 
express proteins from their own promoters at endogenous levels, whereas in mammalian cells, the state of the art was to ectopically overexpress proteins, tag with GFP or RFP. You would clone GFP or RFP behind your gene, uh, and then you would add that gene on top of the genes that were already in the genome. Other, also, um, we wondered if the inability to distinguish clathrin-mediated endocytic events from other clathrin events in the cell might be a problem in mammalian cells. Because when we started working in mammalian cells, we found it was much less clear, especially when we looked at clathrin, what the source of the clathrin was. In yeast, it was very clear because we could see it from the side, forming on the cell surface and moving into the cell. But in mammalian cells, where one typically looked at the surface of a cell by uh, turf microscopy, it seemed that some of the clathrin that was in the turf field might have come from other intracellular trafficking events. Okay, so here we have a cartoon of the clathrin-mediated endocytosis pathway showing that events in this pathway also happen with a distinct order. And others before us had done really nice studies tagging proteins like clathrin and dynamin with green fluorescent protein and red fluorescent protein. And we decided to do the same thing. We tagged clathrin with red fluorescent protein and dynamin with green fluorescent protein. Um, but we did it in a different way from how other people had done it before us. We did it by endogenous tagging. And we were fortunate to collaborate with Fyodor Ernoff at Sangamo Biosciences, um, who was working with this sort of very new technique at the time called genome editing and using zinc finger nucleases. So we started using zinc finger nucleases to homologously integrate GFP and RFP into the genomes um, so that we could do this without perturbing the endogenous expression of clathrin and dynamin, as well as other proteins, such as AP2, which is an endocytic adapter protein. And then, you know, we started to look at endocytosis in mammalian cells. And so this is a turf microscopy looking... Uh, which illuminates the bottom surface of a cell that has been endogenously tagged for clathrin in red and dynamin in green. And when we watch this in real time, what we see are lots of red and green spots. And what happens if you watch any of these red spots, after a while it will turn yellow and then green. And what that signifies is that clathrin is assembling into a coated pit, and then dynamin in green is coming along and pinching off the vesicle. And so this was very nice. These were stable cell lines that expressed clathrin and dynamin uh, tagged with fluorescent proteins at endogenous levels. But it is more work to do this endogenous tagging. And an important question is, was it really worth the effort? And did our um, assumption that overexpressing proteins was, was perturbing the pathway, was that a valid assumption? And so we did a, an experiment where we compared overexpressed tagged clathrin and dynamin to endogenously tagged clathrin and dynamin. And to do that, we used uh, films of cells like this from turf microscopy, but we made an entire movie like this, a four-minute movie, into one um, figure, a three-dimensional chymograph. And so that's shown here. And so this is the surface of a cell now that's overexpressing clathrin and dynamin tagged with RFP for clathrin and GFP for dynamin. And time is in the Z dimension. And so each of these pillars is an endocytic site. And what you can see is that there's no real distinct phase 
when there's clathrin without dynamin. The two sort of blur together. You can't really distinguish the kinetics of one from the other very well. Now, what would this look like if we endogenously tag these two proteins? Well, that's shown here. And so now, what we see as time again goes up in the z-dimension, for each of these endocytic sites, for most of the lifetime of that endocytic site, we only have clathrin. And every single one of those sites is punctuated by a burst of dynamin assembly, which then results in the pinching off of an endocytic vesicle. So, this is actually much more regular than had been reported by others in the field. And so, we think that the extra trouble to endogenously tag the, the clathrin and dynamin um, genes was worth... was worth the effort. And now, having this kind of regular profile helps us to do other studies where we perturb functions and try to figure out what different proteins are doing in this process. So, one of the things you can do, um, because these cells are stable cells that are endogenously tagged, we don't have to look around in the field to find a cell that's just expressing the right level of clathrin or dynamin. We can actually look in an unbiased manner across cells and look at thousands of events and look at the lifetimes, for example, of clathrin. Here we're looking at 21,000 events at dynamin and find... looking at 1,700 events, uh, that we can do this in an unbiased, systematic uh, manner. What we found here is that dynamin lifetimes are very regular, whereas clathrin lifetimes are very irregular. And actually, in this sense, there's a convergence between the yeast studies and the mammalian studies, because we found that the latest... the later part of the yeast endocytic pathway, all the events are very regular, but the early events, like the assembly of clathrin, are irregular in their lifetimes. Okay. And so, from this kind of... using these genome-edited cells, we could average endocytic events and come up with a very nice kinetic profile of uh, the formation of endocytic vesicles. And so, what we see in red is the appearance of clathrin. It increases as the clathrin coat assembles. It reaches a plateau. And then only after clathrin plateaus, there's a spike of dynamin assembly. And then both proteins disappear together as an endocytic vesicle forms. Now, another aspect of this genome editing is that if you edit both alleles of your gene, that means that all of the fluorescence... Uh, all of the molecules that are associated with the site are fluorescent. And that means that if you could calibrate this fluorescence, you could actually count the number of molecules that appear at every event. And so we first did that. We're doing that for lots of proteins now, but we first did that for dynamin. And what we found was that only one ring of dynamin was sufficient to be able to pinch off an endocytic vesicle. So, these kind of studies then can provide lots of mechanistic insights into this process. Now, let's get back to actin. So, Merrifield found that he could see actin assembling at endostic sites in uh, his videos. This is a beautiful electron micrograph from the laboratory of Tatiana Svitkina, which shows a clathrin-coated vesicle in yellow here, and she's colorized actin in blue, and you could see this branched actin network associated with this clathrin-coated uh, um, uh, vesicle that's forming. So, cl- clearly, actin and clathrin uh, do associate in mammalian cells. But one question is, how often do actin and clathrin associate? Is actin an integral part of the clathrin-mediated endocytosis machinery, or is it just something that, say, gets recruited when membrane tension is high? Well, 
we um, tagged actin and clathrin, and what we found was that essentially all of the endocytic events, or at least uh, around 90% of them, are uh, terminated by a burst of actin assembly. And interestingly, the actin assembly in our endogenously uh, tagged cells usually preceded the appearance of dynamin, although sometimes it was after dynamin. But it appears that the assembly of actin occurs as an endocytic vesicle is forming in mammalian cells. And so the actin machinery isn't can be considered an integral part of the endocytic uh, uh, process for clathrin-coated endocytosis. Now, in yeast cells, I showed in my second presentation that if we... Um, this is a chymograph again, which I showed before, that if we um, look in an untreated cell, we see these curved hook structures. Uh, as time increases, a coat forms on the surface of the cell and then curves into the cell as a vesicle forms. But if we block actin assembly, we absolutely block uh, endocytosis. Now, what about the function of actin in endocytosis in mammalian cells? It was uh, looking in different cell types. There were different reports. Sometimes actin assembly seemed to be important or helpful, and sometimes it didn't. Tommy Kirkhausen's lab did a nice study where they showed that high membrane tension created a, a dependency on actin assembly. But how important was actin just for endocytic events under normal conditions. We thought with our genome-engineered cells, where events were happening in a very regular manner, that we had, may have the sensitivity to detect effects of perturbing actin uh, to an extent that hadn't been done in other... Um, in previous studies. And so here, we're looking at um, genome-engineered dynamin expressed in endogenous levels, and this is... these are now chymographs looking at many endocytic events with time going from uh, left to right in these diagrams. And what we've done is we're looking at the lifetimes of many different dynamin events. And you can see that they're very regular in these um, normal untreated cells. But as we start to titrate in more and more latrunculin A, what we're seeing is that the lifetimes of the dynamin get progressively longer and longer. So not only is actin integral to the formation of a clathrin-coated vesicle, but it's actually functioning to make the process more efficient uh, for, we think, for every endocytic event. So when Sunhei Hong joined the lab, she wanted to understand better the uh, efficiency of endocytosis in mammalian cells and to understand the difference between what was happening in yeast cells, where essentially all of the events that were initiated led to the formation of a vesicle, and mammalian cells where it was reported that uh, only um, maybe around half or less of the events resulted in endocytic vesicles forming. And so she did a very careful quantitative analysis and used machine learning to, uh, to analyze these uh, events quantitatively. And what she did uh, first is she divided the lifetimes, uh, all the clathrin... Uh, for all the clathrin events into those that were under 20 seconds and those that were greater than 20 seconds. And then she co-localized those events with dynamin. And so clathrin... these are traces of clathrin on the surface of a mammalian cell. And the clathrin is in red and the dynamin's in green. And when clathrin appeared on the surface of the cell for less than 20 seconds, the clathrin almost never co-localized with dynamin. However, when clathrin was present on the surface of the cell for more than 20 seconds, it almost always co-localized with dynamin. So it seemed that there were different classes of events that we were looking at 
by turf microscopy. And she could quantify that here and show that most of the events um, that were greater than 20 seconds resulted in the formation of an endocytic vesicle, which we marked by the recruitment of dynamin. And this represented about 56% of the total uh, appearances of clathrin in the turf field. She further analyzed this with her machine learning approach, um, the, the, the uh, productive and unproductive events, by now doing double tagging of cells for clathrin, which, remember, has different sources in the cell. It can appear at the plasma membrane for clathrin-mediated endocytosis, but it's also part of intracellular trafficking routes. So she labeled the cells with clathrin, but also AP2, which is an adapter protein that's specific for sites of clathrin-mediated endocytosis. And what she found is that for those events that only had clathrin, the, the, and the site, the clathrin, was moving around quite a bit in the XY plane of the, the... basically in the plane of the plasma membrane. And the same for AP2 that didn't have clathrin. But for any event that had both clathrin and AP2, they didn't move around much in the plasma membrane. And so, putting this together with other studies of the kinetics of um, the accumulation of clathrin and dynamin, for example, uh, she was able to come to the following conclusion. And that is that most endocytic events that occur with the initiation marked by clathrin and AP2 and its adapter go on to form of an endocytic vesicle. They, redu- they recruit dynamin and they form a vesicle. Some of those events may be aborted, a very low percent. The other appearances of clathrin in the turf field were marked by a lot of movement in the XY plane. The clathrin did not appear in a very smooth, continuous manner. Um, and the clathrin did not co-localize with AP2. And they had lifetimes generally of less than 20 seconds. And we figured that most of these events were due to sort of visitors to the turf field. And that this was sort of a noise, part of the, the um, cost of doing these kinds of studies in mammalian cells, where you can't watch the process from the side and see the evolution of the endocytic vesicle, but you're just looking at things that are in the turf field, that you have to filter out these events that are not authentic endocytic events. And that when you can concentrate just on the authentic endocytic events, then you can see that the process is very efficient and very regular. And this gives you great sensitivity to now perturb the system and ask what, you know, what kind of effects uh, do you see when you when you knock down specific proteins in this process. Okay. So, another thing that was um, really very interesting to us was that when we started working on mammalian cells and studying the literature, it was clear that in different studies, the dynamics of clathrin-mediated endocytosis and the morphology of these sites varied quite a bit. And so, we wondered what could be the source of this variation. Could it be studies in different species, say, rat versus human? Could it be the cell type, say, a liver cell versus a fibroblast? Could it be chromosome abnormalities, because studies were being done in tissue culture cells, which um, are known to have all sorts of chromosome imbalances, and so maybe it was a non-physiological state? Or could it be that most tissue culture lines uh, are derived from cancer, and all these studies had been done in cancer-derived tissue culture cells? And so, our solution to these problems 
was to start to use stem cells for our studies, okay? So, on the right, we see a karyotype for a HeLa cell. And you can see that it's really very abnormal, okay? The chromosomes, there you don't see pairs of chromosomes, you see sometimes four or five copies of a chromosome. There are all sorts of massive translocations. This is only a snapshot of a HeLa cell. This is constantly evolving. So, there constantly are um, more chromosomes being gained and lost and more translocations happening because one of the hallmarks of cancer cells is chromosome instability. On the left is the karyotype of the WTC IPS stem cell line that we obtained from Bruce Conklin's lab at UCSF. And you can see that it has a normal karyotype, okay? So, we decided we wanted to start doing our studies in human stem cells. One of the advantages of this is that we could now use genome editing to edit some stem cells, either IPS cells or embryonic stem cells. We've used both. And then we could differentiate those cells to different states. So, for example, we like to make neuroprogenitor cells and fibroblast cells. And now we have different isogenic cell lines that we can compare to each other. And we could start to ask questions about the differences in dynamics, morphology of endocytic events. And we can ask whether these differences represent actually developmentally programmed um, specific changes in the process, or uh, are, are there other sources? And so, what we found was very gratifying. This is, um, first of all, this is just a picture to show you some of the different kinds of endocytic structures that are seen. Here you can see there are plaques, so-called plaques of clathrin, and endocytic vesicles appear to be coming out from the sides of them. And you can see similar things in other studies. And so, are these... Are these normal physiological states? Um, why do you see them in some studies and not in others? And so, uh, Daphne Dambernay engineered human embryonic stem cells, shown in the middle, to express clathrin RFP and dynamin GFP. And she could see that the endocytic structures were somewhat large, but they were red and then they turned green. When she differentiated these into fibroblasts, the endocytic structures, the clathrin structures, became huge. And what we often see is that one of these structures flashes with green many times. Each of those green flashes is recruitment of dynamin, suggesting that these are large, perhaps, plaques of clathrin that are making many endocytic vesicles. The neuroprogenitor cells were really interesting because they had a completely distinct phenotype. They had the fastest endocytic events we could see, and they were very small sites that were just making clathrin and then dynamin, clathrin and dynamin, very quickly. And when we collaborated with Justin Taraska's lab and did uh, electron microscopy on these endocytic sites, the electron microscopy mapped very well onto what we saw in the light microscope. The uh, stem cells had sort of larger um, uh, endocytic vesicles that they were forming. The neuroprogenitors were making uniformly very small uh, clathrin-coated vesicles. But the fibroblasts had these big plaques um, that often were... seemed to be budding vesicles from their sides. And so, from this, we conclude that the differences in morphology and dynamics of endocytosis are actually due to a program, a developmental program, that specifies that the dynamics and structure should be different. And now we have a system where we can try to understand why these differences are developing, as well as understand how. And the how question we've actually already made progress on Daphne started
started looking at different endocytic proteins to see which ones might be expressed at different levels in these cell types. She found that the AP2 adapter protein is expressed at high levels in our starting embryonic stem cells, and also at high levels in our fibroblast cells by, uh, again, by, by making movies with a GFP-tagged AP2. But when... But in the neuroprogenitor cells, it was expressed at very low levels relative to these other cell types. However, the AP2 is there. When she increases the contrast, she can see that the AP2 is actually present at these endocytic sites. So, this gave us a, a hypothesis. That hypothesis is that the levels of AP2 expression may be controlling the morphology and dynamics of the site, of these endocytic sites. So, maybe fibroblasts make very large, relatively static structures because they make a lot of AP2. And so, we could ask whether that's true by knocking down AP2. Um, and now, clathrin is in magenta, and dynamin is in green. And you can see in a control cell, uh, fibroblasts, that they're again making these large structures that often flash green with dynamin. But what happens when you knock down AP2 to levels that are similar to those expressed in neuroprogenitor cells? And that's shown here. And now, the fibroblasts are making lots of very small endocytic structures very rapidly. So, using this system, we're able to show that the changes in dynamics and structure of these endocytic sites are programmed during development, and we're able to identify a key molecule in the control of the dynamics of these events. Okay. Finally, a lot of these... For this section on um, stem cells, you know, most of the studies, typically on processes like endocytosis, are done on cells grown on glass, which is a very non-physiological situation. But one of the other advantages of stem cells is that you can now produce all sorts of organoids from them. And so, we've started to make organoids with the help from the Hockemeyer lab at UC Berkeley. Um, and here, we've taken our stem cells with uh, red clathrin and green dynamin and made a three-dimensional organoid. And we went to Janelia Farm with the Betzig lab and imaged these by lattice light sheet microscopy with adaptive optics. And we can get beautiful three-dimensional images. And we can actually look at the dynamics with high time resolution in something that's now... Uh, looks much more like a tissue. And so, this particular tissue happens to be a um, intestinal epithelium. And we can look at the differences in the apical and basolateral surfaces, for example. Okay. So, to summarize, yeast-like engineering of mammalian cells we can do targeted integration of gene fusions to preserve cellular function. Uh, the regularity and dynamics has facilitated unbiased quantitative uh, analysis of the dynamics um, and given us key mechanistic insights. And then the regularity has facilitated genetic and chemical dissection of the process. So we believe we're getting more information with greater sensitivity. And finally, the stem cells, we think, are reducing sources and eliminating sources of heterogeneity um, in these cells, because we can now use isogenic cell lines that we uh, differentiate from parent stem cells. So, last, I just wanted to say a few words about some things that we're doing with these engineered cells. So, now we have... We have over 120 engineered cell lines, and we're looking for different assays to to, uh, explore functionality in this this process. One of the things that's... uh, ideas that we've been trying to... Uh, to figure out how to test for a while came from our theory collaboration with George Oster. And this is a a profile of an endocytic invagination. And a notion that we proposed 
is that the curvature of the, of the plasma membrane as the endocytic site evolves may be feeding back to the, um, to the biochemical reactions like the hydrolysis of PIP2 by synaptogenin, the binding of bar proteins, and so on and so forth. And so the chemical reactions may be controlling the curvature, and the curvature may be controlling the chemical reactions. But how do you test an idea like that? Well, we were very fortunate to get together with the SWE lab at Stanford University, and they had shown that if they engineered nanopillars into quartz surfaces and then put a mammalian cell on those nanopillars, the bottom surface of the cell, the membrane, would adopt the curvature of those pillars. And so we asked whether, if we induced curvature in the membrane, whether that would affect the endocytic process. And so we used, uh, for some experiments, gradients of nanopillars that were sort of within a biologically relevant range of diameters. When we put the cells on these um, pillars, this is a, 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 a thin section electron micrograph. We could see a pillar here. Um, and then the mammalian cell is sitting on top of the pillar, and the plasma membrane is clearly wrapping itself around the pillar, and a clathrin-coated vesicle is coming off the pillar. This is an electron micrograph that Wen Ting Zhao made, and it's, it's just remarkable. So is that really, are these becoming sites of clathrin-mediated endocytosis? And so we made um, nanopillar bars, or the SWE lab made these nanopillar bars, and put our genome-edited cells on these bars. Along the middle of the bar, the, the, surf, the membrane is going to be rather flat, but at the ends, the curvature is going to be very high. And when we did that, here's Brightfield of two bars. We put our genome-engineered cells with red clathrin and green dynamin. This is a chymograph with time going down. What we found from the two ends is that they became hot spots and are just continuously streaming clathrin-coated vesicles, which you can see here by the red clathrin punctuated by green dynamin. So inducing membrane curvature is doing something to prime the pathway for clathrin-mediated endocytosis, and now we're well-positioned to figure out how that works and how membrane curvature is talking to clathrin-mediated uh, endocytosis. And so these are the folks that did a lot of the work that I, I talked about. Uh, Aaron Chang and Daphne Dambernay who are responsible for the stem cell work. Sunhei Hong did our machine learning. Chris, uh, Christopher, I mean, Alex Rossart and, and uh, Aaron Chang were, did a lot of the pioneering studies on, on actin in the lab, and, and Jeff Doyen and others were very important for starting us in the genome engineering. 